0: His Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Brandon McGinley. He's a writer and journalist on faith and politics whose work has appeared in First Things, our magazine, as well as in The Washington Post, The National Review, Catholic Herald, and other publications. He has a new book out called The Prodigal Church, Restoring Catholic Tradition in an Age of Deception. It's with Sophia Press. Uh, welcome, welcome, Mr. McGinley.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Barline. It's great to speak with you.
0: All right. Well, it's a great read. I, I, I read it through uh, the other day. Very readable. And you begin with an interesting moment that I've never heard referred to before. Uh, it's a radio address from 1969 given by Father Ratzinger at the time. What did he say there? Why is this important to, to your argument in the book?
1: This is the radio address from which the idea... That uh, then Father Ratzinger, of course, later Pope Benedict, that he desired, not only predicted, but desired a, a quote, smaller and purer church. And that's not what he said at all. He he, uh, predicted a smaller and, as he put it then, more spiritual church. And he didn't necessarily say this was a good thing, but this is simply what was happening. When you read this address from, what is it, you know, 50 years ago now, it's incredible how. Uh, applicable it would be to today, mm-hmm. but you know that that point of it being a, a smaller and purer church, a more spiritual church, doesn't have to be a purer church. It could be a more self-absorbed church. It could be it could be a, a church that is no longer interested in going out into the world, but a more spiritual church could be could be pure. And a lot of that, uh, you know, when it comes to the book, is that it's up to us uh, as as the laity, especially. In these In these times when especially in America and especially in places where I live like Pittsburgh, where the church is being shorn of all of her kind of traditional institutions and parishes are, are combining and merging and shrinking and so on um, that if if we are going to be a church that is smaller and less uh, less attached to, uh, to to like I said her traditional institutions, it's going to be up to us to recapture. And bring to bear in, in the world today her kind of the ancient wisdom of, of the church, but especially also, you know, just living the day to day faithfulness of uh, of the life of grace.
0: That's really the the call of the book, the prodigal church. And you have a lot on the the parable of the prodigal son, and and you read you read a lot into that. Let me let me ask for we'll get to that, but you have a little sort of biographical observation in there, you're in your late 30s, you say that nearly every devoted Catholic of your age that you know is either a convert or a revert, someone who's come back to the church. Why why is that?
1: What does that tell you? And this is something that actually also, it it, it dovetails nicely with Father Ratzinger's address 50 years ago, where he talked about how the church can no longer count on people simply being born and staying Catholic, can no longer count on the faith being passed down in the way that DNA is passed down. Um, Rather, it will become more, and this is not an ideal situation for the church, I should add, but it is potentially something that could uh, could be an opportunity but that, uh, that the church becomes more of a voluntary institution. The idea that, like I said, that the faith is passed down like DNA, like the, the, that you are born Catholic and that you stay Catholic and that you are ensconced not just in the church as a spiritual, spiritual institution, but in a culture, in a kind of uh, tribe, that, that is gone. Uh, if you're going to commit yourself to what the, uh, the truths the church proclaims, if you're going to commit yourself to a life uh, that is organized around those truths, Um, that's not something that any longer, um, very often at least, is simply passed down. It's something that people have to come to on their own and choose. And so certainly, you know, in my situation, knowing mostly people were kind of, you know, mid to late millennials um, when it comes to my kind of primary social circles. Yes, in many cases, these are people who found the faith in college, who were either nothing or some kind of Protestant uh, and found the faith in college. Like people like myself who were raised in a, I'm from Pittsburgh, my parents grew up in, you know, in, in parish neighborhoods uh, in the city in a very, very kind of typical Pittsburgh way. But for me, certainly when I looked around me uh, as, as I was growing up, it was pretty clear that kind of as the generations went by, uh, people were becoming less and less attached to, to that aspect of their identity. And so for me, by the time I was in high school, I more or less didn't care about, you know, the whole thing. And, uh, and similarly to several of my friends, returned to the faith actually in college. In, a, in a world, uh, the world, kind the of acid bath of secular liberalism, where all of our kind of pre-existing uh, kind of commitments are washed away and everyone is supposed to be kind of a blank slate, the church ends up playing on that playing field. Again, it's not an ideal situation because in a perfect world, something I talk about later in the book is uh, the the church is a culture building institution. And at her best, she is co-opting the world around her and forming a culture, a culture that is integral to passing down the faith. But now being in a situation where we are lacking that, we have to kind of make the best with what we have. And that's going to mean, I think, a a more zealous and um, precisely because it's more voluntary uh, kind of Catholic community. Um, we have to understand the drawbacks of that, um, that being a bit detached from our history and from kind of an authentic Catholic culture can lead you to kind of go off on, go off on some dead ends, but at the same time recognize that, um, you know, there is a real opportunity here, as long as we're looking towards building for the future and not just maintaining uh, the status quo.
0: You know, I've had a few guests on who give reminiscences of how much different the situation was for Catholics, the social and cultural situation going back to the mid-20th century. And you you talk about Pittsburgh and the parishes in Pittsburgh. What was going on? What, what was the typical social condition? Not even religious condition, the social condition of the parishes in Pittsburgh in 1955. You look at that
1: era and you see a place where the parish is the, the center of life where uh, and not just, not just spiritual liturgical life where, you know, I think of, I think of my mother who would have been, this would have been, this would have been into the 1960s where, you know, the, um, the, the school gym, because not only, not only was there a parish elementary school or a parish middle school, you know, right around the time my, my mother entered high school with this, they merged, but for much of her childhood, her parish, which was surrounded by several other parishes within the neighborhood had its own high school. That's how many Catholic children we were educating, um, and the school gym would be not just for for you know basketball and so on, but would be a place where there would be community events. Um, I believe my mom worked for a while. Like so many of the children of the of the parish worked in the parish office, and this was just this is the way life was. There would be six, seven, eight, nine, ten masses on Sundays.
0: Wow. That's a number I saw I saw in your book when you were when you were documenting just how number how many masses there were each Sunday. Amazing.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One of the little anecdotes in the book, you know, is about how a few years ago, um, a suburban parish that was it is in a relatively dense suburb. So the kind of place where it wasn't totally sprawled out and where the church could still be more or less kind of a center of a real proximate community rather than a kind of everybody's driving twenty minute community. And uh, they um, released uh, bulletins, reprints of the bulletins from uh, 50 years ago. Or I think it was actually maybe like 70 years ago. And it was incredible to, uh, to see the number of masses, the number of, of sodalities and auxiliaries and ministries. You know, it was, it was, really, it was really inspiring. And you know, when we look at that, for, for me, you know, first of all, we want to look at that and say, okay, what can we learn from this? What can we learn? What what positives can we take away from this? But we also need to be realistic and and, and realize that that's that's not coming back. You know, if it's going to come back, it's not going to come back, uh, certainly in the short term, but only after the rebuilding of an authentic Catholic culture, the kind of culture that built and sustained that kind of, um, that kind of liturgical and social life. At the same time, you know, One of the points I want to ma- I make in the book that I, I think is, is really kind of essential to understanding the kind of historiography that I'm, I'm working with is that for all of the apparent vitality there, um, we were only a decade away from a lot of that really starting to, um, to kind of collapse. And, and, and it's not just the council. It's not just things like, you know, I, I'm a, I guess you could say I'm a uh, kind of... Um, you know, dilettante uh, urbanist. It's not just suburbanization. <laughs> it's, not, uh, it's not just any of these things, but it's all of these things, all of these things working together and also acting on a culture that I argue was already more and more attached to the mainstream.
0: Well, one interesting paradox that you bring up, maybe it's not even a paradox, but you say that, okay, the, the, there was so much vitality. And the the pews were full, but that doesn't mean that in 1950 Catholicism was mainstream. That Catholicism was perfectly adapted to uh, the the popular the popular culture or WASP society. Other names that you can bring that, in fact, as Catholicism during the 1950s was becoming more mainstream. People might have thought this is a sign of Catholicism's vitality and growth, but in fact, there was there was actually something else going on there—that there were dangers in becoming more American. Maybe that's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I draw a little bit, you know, from from the language of um, Fulton Sheen, who wrote in his autobiography about how even then, what he called the spirit of kind of the bourgeois had kind of entered the church where the mass mass, masses were full, but at a certain point, mass was mm, a place to go and be seen rather than a place to go and worship, or it's both of these things, but one is subtly taking over the other. Another little anecdote from the book from my own own history is my dad would talk about how um, in the 1960s, in his parish, the Christmas Midnight Mass was the social event of the season. And the boys would invite girls and they would get all dressed up and get corsages, the whole nine yards. And on the one hand, you want to say, wow, what a wonderful, vital you know, parish life that even mass has kind of taken on the social meaning that, that people are, are getting excited for. On the other hand, it's not hard to imagine a situation, and I think it's one that my dad would attest to, where the mass has become primarily a social function and where you know christ in the blessed sacrament is just one guest
0: at the party you, you know you say something striking in there in terms of the, the popularization motif you actually regard in a sense the the advent of jfk as one of the the most treacherous things that ever happened to the American church, why is that?
1: I think the um, you know it kind of confirmed the idea that we had made it that we I think I say something in the book that the extent of like you know we, we kind of were starting to feel more and more like wasps, and we liked it, and what is waspier than running for and winning the presidency <laughs> and uh, and so yeah, I, I think that. We had been I think uh, we as Catholics were confirmed in the notion that we were now um, uh, kind of perfectly in line or quite nearly perfectly in line with the American mainstream that we were now we had achieved this respectability that it was it was hard won. And now we don't want to give it up. And of course, right at that moment, you have a combination of things happen. You have the counterculture. You, you have the sexual revolution. You have these major cultural shifts that, that shift the course of the mainstream. At the same time, you have the Second Vatican Council, which whatever else you might say about it certainly gave the impression to the average person in the pews that the church had kind of gotten with the times too. So all of these things happening, you know, we get into the mainstream, the mainstream shifts, we get this impression from Rome and from, you know, often from, you know, less than sincere, um, you know, prelates and priests that are, you know, passing, passing things down, that we're with the program. So we find ourselves in a situation where we are, you know, deeper and deeper, kind of in this increasingly crooked mainstream. And so now, as we're in the situation with kind of a more, more, more more, of a, a voluntary association kind of church where, there's, where there is that kind of smaller and, and more spiritual, as Benedict put it, um, aspect to it. Uh, we're being invited, I think, to try to break free of that and to build a, a new and distinct Catholic culture uh, in the wake of the old one, and that is kind of running in parallel with the, with the culture around us.
0: You know, in another uh, discussion of something going on around that time, you talk about Vatican II, and in many cases, the way in which Vatican II reached the laity in in you know a working class Pittsburgh parish is that suddenly, you know, one week later, the parishioners go to church and the altars are different. All 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 of the interior, the physical interior of the church has completely changed with no no real explanation for for why all of that happened. How did the how did the priests not think to themselves? You know, people people come to the church. They've been coming here for years, and they find the same things. They go out of the world and into this place, and now we've changed everything. Isn't this going to be a little bit disorienting? Yeah,
1: I, I think that I think it kind of goes to the idea that the kind of the revolution had already gotten a foothold in the church by the time this happened, such that. Certainly for a lot of priests, this was just the natural course of things. We, we, they had already kind of felt like the church had gotten with the times in terms of where their parishioners were, in terms of where the, kind of, they were culturally, and now now Rome has caught up, and we are just going to kind of snap forward uh, to the place where they felt we, we always should have been. And so, yeah, and like, like you're saying, you know, the, the average parishioner is not, you know, sitting down and reading Gaudium et Spes or Lumen Gentium, you know. They, what they are doing is sending their kids, or often, in, you know, for many of the folks who are now kind of in the generation who are influential in, the, in and around the church today, they were high schoolers or middle schoolers in a Catholic school. And one May, they go home uh, having had a, you know, a, a, a baccalaureate mass or something in a wonderfully appointed school chapel or in their parish church and then show up three or four months later in a, uh, a school chapel that has been whitewashed. The altar has been pulled out of the wall. All of the, the, the kind of uh, the ways our, our senses interact with the church changed radically. Even if we could talk to her blue in the face how the theology didn't change that much, how it was, you know, mostly a clarification of this or that, and it's really quite beautiful, and a lot of the documents are beautiful, but the actual way that, that people interact with the Church is through their senses. And when that's radically changed, then it can seem like everything else has changed,
0: too. What would you say was the worst instance of the Church trying to, to keep up with secular bourgeois culture? Do you, do, you, do you have a particularly pernicious example you'd want to share? Oh, man.
1: Um, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 spent, I spent a good deal of time on Kennedy. I, I think that, um, hmm, oh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'll say two things. One is that one thing that was arrested by Pope St. Paul VI with Humana Vitae was um, the, the sense that we had gotten with the program with regard to sexual morality. And, and that, and the thing is, is that with the numbers on the number of Catholics who use birth control anyways, it still was extremely, extremely pernicious. And so even though the church has held the line officially uh, as an institution, I think that um, the, the kind of tacit approval that is still often given to contraception is, is a great example of, of really embracing a kind of bourgeois morality. Um, and then the other, frankly, I think is that the church got away from, I would say the church got away from her distinctive criticisms of of like Amer- of American style, uh, of American style economics, of American style capitalism. It's one thing to, you know, we could say, oh, well, you see that, you still see that in the church. But so often, even the criticisms of kind of, you know, free market economics or whatever that you get within the church are themselves more or less indistinguishable from those that you get among secular liberals or secular leftists. And so losing that distinctive view of what politics and economics is and can be, that distinctive view of the common good, that distinctive view of justice, even social and economic justice, these these are words that have meaning in the church. And the church was at the forefront of speaking about, and I fear that we have seeded the field uh, to those who have completely different views of what those mean, and on the one hand, kind of contemned them, and on the other hand, completely capitulated to a wrong-headed view of what they mean. And so, I, I think that the Catholic view of of politics and the common good is is another, perhaps perhaps the perhaps even the most pernicious um, example of the way that the Catholic view of things faded. As we allowed ourselves to be co-opted by the uh, by the options on the table in the secular world,
0: would you like to see uh, No Meat Friday come back?
1: Oh my goodness! Yeah, <laughs> uh, the Church institutionally needs to act as if she believes what she says she believes, and this is something that you know that comes through it comes through in the book a lot. Those visible signs of Catholic distinctiveness that. Have, first of all, they have a cultural impact because they give us that sense of distinctiveness and they demonstrate to the world that we have something different to offer and that we organize our lives, even if in small ways, along different lines than, than the rest of the world. Um, and then, you know, secondly, meat, Meatless Fridays were, on the one hand, you know, on the one hand, it's a small thing. It's not a huge thing to give up meat on Fridays. No. But, but. It is a big thing in terms of reminding ourselves as Catholics that there's a different way of thinking about time and a different way of thinking about the way we organize our lives in the rest of the world. And so it's just, it's a, little, just a little reminder that every Friday is supposed to be a little good Friday. And then Sunday, of course, another classic example is you know, having you know, the church just having not a word to say, certainly, anymore— about the way the sundays have been completely lost to nfl football to you know shops being open all the time to everything for me personally one of the best little things that that i've done and that our family has we've we've kind of tried to do is to create that little bit of liturgical drama every week where fridays are a little different we eat a little less we don't eat meat and then sundays of course there's mass but then also Try to do the lawn work on Saturdays. Try to get the try to get the errands done on Saturdays so that Sundays can be a genuine day of rest. It's not that's harder than meatless Fridays because you really have in a in a world where you really only have two days to get to get everything done. You know, when you're busy during the week uh, with work and so on, um, that does require a bit of organization, and we aren't perfect at it. But creating that little bit of liturgical drama every week it really makes it makes the claims and the and the the and the, the the stories of the church feel much more real.
0: Okay, who was Saint Andre Bessette, and why was he important to you?
1: When I was coming back to the church, I, I credit the the Catholic um, chaplaincy and the um, culture uh, among the undergraduates at Princeton. Honestly, uh, the Catholic undergraduates and Professor George and everyone there. But the one catal- kind of like one kind of catalyst moment for me was. Um, my family went on vacation to Montreal and Andre Bessette was the driving force behind the construction of the largest church in Canada, which is the St. Joseph's oratory on the hill above Montreal. And we visited that church and in the crypt is one of those places where the wall is lined with early 20th century crutches and wheelchairs um, from folks who came to visit St. Andre and were healed. And there was uh, an onyx tomb. of At that point, when we were there, it was a blessed Andre. He had yet to be canonized. But I remember seeing a family with a disabled child praying furiously over the tomb. And at that point, I was still kind of... I wasn't, I was, I was getting more and more interested in this Catholicism thing. I kind of believed the cultural and political stuff, but I wasn't really sure about the whole spiritual prayer (laughs) aspect. And so to see that kind of thing for me was really powerful. But, you know, the story of St. Andre is one of a kind of, of a a great simplicity, similar to Blessed Solanus Casey in the United States, or even to St. Giambiani in a certain sense, although, um, Saint Andre was not ordained a priest. He was a he was a um, a porter because he was considered to be too simple to 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 advance beyond that. And yet, and yet his his holiness, his simple and unpragmatic holiness, um, first of all, had the great practical implication of attracting the interest and funds to build the biggest church in Canada. But then, also, of course, led to the conversion and healing of so many. I think in an age of pragmatism, in an age of of uh, what I talk in the book, kind of the spirit of the quid pro quo, that kind of spirit of calculation. I don't, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a mistake. I don't think it's a coincidence. The Holy Spirit has raised up saints like Saint Andre, or Blessed Solanus Casey, in like I said in in the U.S., who demonstrate for us a deeply, in worldly terms, impractical spirituality but one whose fruits have been extraordinary.
0: All right, here's a, an odd question. What might the hippies teach Catholics today, which you bring up? <laughs> yeah,
1: I want to, I, I, I talk a lot about um, the idea of peace. And peace as a, peace as something that is really the mark of the work of God in the world. Peace within the soul peace among others. But peace is, and here's where, you know, here's kind of where you where, the, And so it, the hippies, in a sense, kind of get that right, you know, that this idea that that peace and, and love, you know, these are these can be culture building things, this kind of harmony among human beings is something we should aim for. The, the lack of it is something that we should we should be disturbed by. Um, we shouldn't we shouldn't be satisfied with a with a with a civilization defined by competition. It's not that competition itself is bad, but when we define ourselves by competition and calculation, that's not something that, that we should be happy with. The problem, of course, is that it needs to be based in something other than ourselves. And so, so we can look with a certain with a certain admiration. is too strong a word, but with a, you know, we, we can we can be we can we can find we can find the the goodness in what was proposed by those who wanted to build a a genuine civilization of, of peace and love. But we must remember that these, these concepts, they are not, they, 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 they can't come out of nothing. And they certainly can't come only out of human goodwill unaided by grace. They need to be founded in something. And so this is where, when we talk about peace, peace is not, Peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is not an absence. Peace is about presence, It's about the presence of harmony, It's about the presence of order. These things we often think of as being in conflict, but uh, a genuine peace, a peace that is worthy of the name, that is not just mere and often kind of unsatisfactory tolerance or a kind of you know, disdainful tolerance, a peace that is something more than that is, uh, can only be founded on the grace of, on the grace of Christ. And I think we're seeing right now how the attempt to build a, uh, build a civilization out of uh, a basically kind of a non-aggression pact among, you know, sovereign individuals is, uh, turns out to not be a sustainable solution. We will all disagree ultimately about what civilization needs to be built on and what that peace needs to be built on, but it has to be built on something. And, uh, and we need to be there as Catholics, not only arguing for a, a, a genuine peace that is built on, uh, on the kingship of Christ, but also living it out in our own lives, but importantly, in our families, in our communities, building the kind of, the kind of little civilizations, the kind of little societies that uh, other people will see a real peace in.
0: The book is The Prodigal Church, Restoring Catholic Tradition in an Age of Decent- Deception. Brandon McGinley, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Barline. It was a real treat.